This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Maria Poulton, a humble cook in a notorious West End tavern called the Coal Hole. Branded as pure evil, her shocking crime scandalized this infamous den of depravity. Only this tragic little murder wasn't committed through rage or hatred, but mercy and love. Murder Marley's researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 126. The Coal Hole Concealment. Today, I'm standing at the Savoy Buildings, just off the Strand, WC2. One street south of the botched robbery at the Coach Norris's pub. One road north of where baby Harry Hartley was hurled into the icy River Thames. A short walk east of the last 37 seconds of Desmond O'Byrne. And directly opposite the Strand Palace Hotel. And the little-known killing of Lila Gilman coming soon to murder mine. Infamous as a semi-prosperous piece on a Monopoly board, the Strand is little more than a four-lane thoroughfare from Trafalgar Square to Temple Bar. Passing such thrilling sights as a Savoy Hotel, Charing Cross Station and the Royal Courts of Justice. The Strand is an odd spot to shop in as it's here that mountaineers go gaga over Gore-Tex, preening ponces purr over cashmere pullovers, dullards go oh. over pricey stamps, 
and between a mucky doos for the ne'er-do-wells, and a free dose of diabetes at the all-you-can-gorge pizza slobatorium, are sandwich shops, where throngs of office workers enthusiastically order a crayfish, guava, and avocado focaccia, only to regret nibbling this fishy filth, slide it into a bin, and claim, ooh, that was too filling. One part of this street has always had a specific purpose, and although a tavern called the Coal Hole now resides at 91 The Strand, it's often mistaken for its more infamous namesake a few feet away. Hidden behind numbers 103 and 104, and formerly known as Fountain Court, the Savoy Buildings is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it alley leading from the Strand to the River Thames. With no light or life, just walls and doors, it's little more than a foreboding crack in the city, where behind a series of cellars and corridors, the unseen filth and slog of the hospitality trade is hidden from respectable society. Long since demolished, at 15 and 16 Fountain Court once stood the original coal hole, an infamous drinking den, saucy theatre, and cesspit of scandal, where every kind of immoral act took place, some of which were illegal, most of which were depraved, but unfairly, only one was punishable by death. As it was here, on Friday the 13th of April, 1832, whilst perched on a chamber pot, that a modest cook called Maria Poulton would risk her life to commit her first and only killing. By today's standards, the life of Maria Poulton was far from immoral. But back in the 1800s, society would regard her as the epitome of sin. Born in 1805, near the Essex hamlet of Ardley Heath, Maria was an ordinary working-class girl from very humble beginnings. With no land or home of their own, like many families forced to toil in the harsh spoils of manual labour, the Poultons fought an everyday battle to be safe, dry and fed. Blessed with a basic literacy from Sunday school and a good moral code as a Catholic, no matter what her hopes and dreams for her own future were, she was limited to live the life that the upper-class men of our so-called civilised society had dictated. Physically, Maria was often mistaken for chubby, with swollen ankles, wide hips, and a round belly. But in truth, she was typical of any malnourished urchin who was surviving on a meagre diet of hard bread, thick lard, starchy potatoes, and the cheapest cuts of the fattiest meat. As a person, Maria was unremarkable. But what made her so beloved was her nature. 
She was poor but always clean. She was lonely but not unhappy. And although disadvantaged, she would remain sweet, meek, and humble. Earning an honest wage since her early years, Maria worked as a maid and a cleaner in the local taverns, and later as a kitchen hand. She kept herself to herself. She was rarely ill, and she never complained to anyone, ever. Even when her life was bad, she dealt with it alone. For a poorly educated working class girl, she had done okay. She was single, solitary, but self-sufficient. Like many women in this era, with no chance of a pension, savings, or a home of her own, the best she could dream of was to marry a good man and spawn several offspring to see her through to her dotage. But by 1831, with her sisters married off and being at the grand old age of 26, Maria was cruelly cursed by society as a spinster. And hardly being a great beauty, her family didn't hold out much hope. Feeling the pinch to follow suit, and deep down, keen to be loved, in July 1831, Maria had met a handsome man called Harris. A romance blossomed, their lust peaked, and just like their love, her belly began to swell. But this love of her life was not to be, as being betrothed to another woman, he fled. The law has scandalized women, their rights, and their biological blessing for centuries. Prior to the 1800s, the women of England were free from legal or religious persecution regarding the termination of a pregnancy. It was their body, and an abortion by any means was their choice. But in 1803, Lord Edward Ellenborough, First Baron Ellenborough, and the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, sought to legally clarify the term abortion, the act itself, and its punishment. Introduced in the all-male, all-white, an all-devoutly religious House of Lords. After a few amendments, but crucially without the need to consult a woman or even their own wives, the bill passed the House of Commons. 115 years before the first female MP, 165 years before the first female Lord, and it came into law on the 18th of May, 1803. It took less than eight weeks and it opened a viper's nest of bigotry. Only this act of parliament, which in a swift strike crushed any woman's right to decide what she could do with her own body and the life of the unborn baby inside her, it wasn't deemed important enough to establish in its own bill. It was a subclause in the malicious shooting and stabbing act of 1803 which criminalized the discharging of loaded weapons, as well as any stabbing, cutting, 
wounding, poisoning, maiming, disfiguring, or disabling of any of His Majesty's subjects. Oh, and the terminations of pregnancies. As of May 1803, the Act decreed that it was an offence for any person to perform or cause an abortion post the point of quickening, where the fetus can be felt moving in the uterus, usually at 16 to 20 weeks. The punishment of which was either transportation for a minimum of 14 years or death. An amendment also criminalized the act of concealment, meaning that if a baby should die during the physically dangerous process of childbirth and the mother should fail to report it, her innocence may only be found if a medical professional deems the death as an act of God. But if that baby had breathed a single breath, in an era where pathology was still in its infancy, the courts could find the mother guilty of murder. Ellenborough's law penalized all women, especially those who were poor, vulnerable, and unmarried. A few streets away, at the infamous Newgate Prison, an average of 30,000 spectators would leer and jeer as many bad men were hanged in public for treason, rape, or piracy. Many ordinary bots had their necks snapped for such menial crimes as theft, forgery, or misrepresenting a will. But often, a woman was subjected to an interminably long strangulation, having been found guilty of the murder of a bastard child. A term reserved for child killers, as well as any mother who had procured a late-term abortion. So popular was this free entertainment that opposite the hangman's gallows was built London's first drinking fountain. Although many of the more respectable spectators celebrated at the coal hole. Originally called the Unicorn, the Coal Hole Tavern at numbers 15 and 16 comprised of two four-story red brick buildings at the northeast end of Fountain Court. As a dark foreboding alley, as gloomy as ashen skin and as skinny as a fleshy bone, with any sun eclipsed by its tall walls, a foul wind whistled down this featureless hole all the way down to the Thames, like a descent into the bowels of hell. Owned by the eponymous John Rhodes, the coal hole was a former coal cellar of the Savoy Hospital. Hidden below ground, it earned a rightfully rude reputation as a place of drunkenness, immorality and debauchery. Only this was not a low-rent flea pit for grubby laborers or bawdy sailors. This was a highbrow arty establishment for the more discerning young gentlemen in their most fashionable top hat and tails. As a members club for men only, 
The coal hole had private rooms for Masonic meetings, a lounge where coffee was not the only stimulant, a hotel called the Metropolis, where guests could depend on well-aired beds, which was code for sex on tap, a theatre replete with songs, jokes, and a little tableau vivant, an arty excuse to ogle the jiggling jollities of a dancer's boobs, butt, and biff, and a tavern where the bawdy excesses of unabashed drunkenness were served in solid silver tankards. And with a blind eye turned by the law, fights and orgies were not uncommon. This was not a place for a young lady, but as the cook for its supper club, Maria saw very little of this. From dusk till dawn, she slaved away in a steamy kitchen, serving honest foods like soups, chops, steaks, and pies. As a cheerful woman, with a sweet smile and a quiet demeanor, she was neat, but never prim and proper. She was well-liked, and yet she rarely said a word. And although senior to Sarah Simmons, the charwoman, and Elizabeth Emerson, the housemaid who she shared a bed with, she had a maternal warmth which they both loved. But not being one to freely gossip about her life or her loves, they respected her privacy. For the first few months, she was blissfully oblivious to the baby inside her. But as a reddening flushed her pallid cheeks, her chronic ankles began to swell, and a new roundness bulged around her midriff. As autumn turned to winter, extra layers and a thick black apron would disguise her shape for now. As her body grew, her options shrank, as every day she was reminded of her dire situation. Outside of the coal hole sat the Strand, a busy London thoroughfare. In front, couples passed through Covent Garden unbothered by law, as a piece of parchment and a gold ring had made them legal. To the left was the Strand Workhouse, a stark warning to any unwed woman as its cemetery sprawled far and wide with the tiny graves of unwanted babies. And to her right, carried on an ill wind, were the deathly cheers and cries of yet another evil woman who was hung at the gallows of Newgate. These were the choices she was given, and none of them were good. Living in a top-floor room above the coal hole, she had a small washing bowl, a dressing table, a thick horsehair bed, and beside this, in a seated wooden box, a porcelain chamber pot. The precursor to the flushable toilet, where pans of pee and poop were expelled without privacy and disposed of by hand. In court, Sarah would state, I asked about Christmas time if she was in the family way. She said no. And respecting this modest lady, I never mentioned it again. But her pregnancy was obvious. Being four to five months gone, 
and having felt the quickening, Maria was left with only one option. In the 1800s, there were very few foolproof methods to induce an abortion. They all came with risks, and they all had side effects. Some were mild, like cramps and nausea. Some were severe, like disability and death. Popular amongst the poorest was tansiol, a violent purgative to flush out the bowels. Pennyroyal, a herb used for colds, fatigue, and as an insect repellent. Ergot, an alkaloid used to treat migraines, which can also cause seizures, organ failure, but also miscarriage. As well as cheaper methods, like very hot baths, turpentine, street gin, vaginal plunging, a punch to the gut, or a fall down a flight of stairs. It is unclear which method Maria chose. Maybe one, maybe many. But as a sickly pale girl who was naturally unsteady on her feet, she hid her sickness well, often putting down the vomit into a bug or the violent stomach pains to off food. And as always, as bad as her life got, she dealt with it alone. Given a little privacy, Maria would perch upon the chamber pot. As the twinge of hot needles poked her innards, she prayed the poison didn't kill her, but did its work. And as the debauched excesses of the so-called gentlemen of civilized society thundered on downstairs, silently she awaited the white porcelain bowl to become flush with the gush of blood and the slop of a limp fetus. But the blood never came. On the night before, of Thursday the 12th of April 1832, with the supper club kitchen closed and the night's frivolities finally winding down, as per usual, Sarah and Maria snuggled up in bed their bodies radiating a reassuring warmth. Only that night, Maria was a lot hotter and clammier, and struggling to lie still as she writhed, her rotund frame twisted as she groaned. But when asked, she claimed it was just a stomachache. By the next morning, a Friday the 13th, having had fitful sleep, Maria was unusually hard to rouse. Her movements were slow, her pale face dripped with sweat, and unusually for her, she complained of a headache. At 2pm, rightfully concerned, Sarah and Elizabeth returned to the bedroom and softly knocked, but got no reply. They knocked again, but heard nothing. So as they entered, they saw Maria, alone, perched upon the wooden box of the chamber pot, struggling to stay upright, her skin wet and her body weak. Miss Poulton, Sarah asked, what's wrong? what's wrong? The porcelain pot, obscured by her long nightdress, a black apron and several petticoats. 
but in a barely audible whisper, Maria replied, Nothing. Nothing. Go. Go. Please go. go. She didn't. Instead asking, Shall I fetch Dr. Dr. Jones? Only Maria said, No, "No, I'm fine. fine. As she ushered her junior away, with a waft of a trembling hand, and a feeble attempt at a reassuring smile. Only those who knew her knew that she wasn't fine, as her white petticoats were stained red. The floor was dotted with thick spots of blood, and lying about her feet were fistfuls of woolen cloth used to stem the flow. Fifteen minutes later, the girls returned. Maria was slumped over, sitting on the side of the bed. Her black apron was gone, her nightdress was untied, and its cord was missing. Too exhausted to move, she weakly asked, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, please please remove this. this. Pointing to the porcelain pot perched upon the locked wooden box, Its pale white shine stained red as wadded rags floated in a thick red sea. Sarah knew, but spoke cautiously. Miss Poulton, Poulton, cook, cook. where is the baby? baby? Too tired to talk, Maria uttered, no baby, just had a small miscarriage. And with no energy left, Maria agreed to see a doctor. The doctor's aide, Charles Thompson, arrived from the surgery at Four Fountain Court. Bedbound, Maria still claimed that it was just a stomachache, but the soiled rags and the spattered pot told a different story. If this was a miscarriage, the law stated that the doctor must observe the fetus, as only he could say whether it had lived or died, even for the briefest of moments. Only Maria stuck to her story. As the aide left, rightfully, Sarah was worried. The law was the law. He could fetch the doctor. He could tell the master. He could summon an officer. If there was a baby, all three of them could charge with aiding the concealment of a baby. So side by side with Elizabeth, Sarah asked, Please "Please cook. Please show us. Reluctantly nodding, with a sharp wince, Maria bent down beside the bed. With a click, She unlocked the wooden box, which recently held the porcelain pot, and pried it open. Inside, all the girls spied were some rags and a black apron. But hidden from sight, as she held a set of scissors, something went snip. In Maria's hand, lay the bloodied cord of her nightdress. 
hanging limply, like two ends of a severed loop. As its once tight cotton noose had been freed from its vice-like grip. Oh, Cook, tell me you didn't, Sarah pleaded. But Maria had. As wrapped in a black bundle, lay a small but well-formed baby girl. Naked and helpless, it lay silent and still. Its little face all purple, its tiny tongue protruding, and its lips the same blue hue as its eyes. As for both of their sakes, she had throttled it before it could even utter a single sound. Oh, Cook, Sarah said. You have hanged the baby. To which Maria implored, Hush, please, you will hang me. But with an officer not far behind, it was too late. Her secret was out. In the bedroom, Dr. Jones examined the cord and the matching mark on the baby's neck, which Maria couldn't account for. But by 7pm, with the arrival of Superintendent Sadler, Maria admitted she was pregnant, unmarried, and admitted to concealing the baby, but nothing more. That night, 27-year-old Maria Poulton was arrested and charged with murder. But she wasn't placed in custody. Clearly exhausted, they left her to sleep. And each day, an officer would check on her well-being. And when she felt strong enough, she presented herself to the police. An autopsy confirmed that the baby's lungs had inflated with air. And although much of the evidence of its death pointed to strangulation by its mother, they couldn't disprove that the baby hadn't died by being asphyxiated by its own umbilical cord. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 17th of May, 1832, Maria was charged with willful murder and concealment of a bastard child. A heinous crime, as despised as treason and rape, which since an act of parliament in 1803 had warranted a death sentence. Only now, the times have changed, and with the act widely considered an unjust law for many mothers, the judge was lenient. As a woman of good character, praised as mild and meek, Mr. Justice Littledale took pity on Maria, dismissed the murder charge, and found her guilty of concealment. She was sent to prison for two years. Maria lived out her final days as a domestic servant to a nice family in Clerkenwell. She was 46 years old, she didn't marry, and although everyone who knew her agreed she would undeniably have made a good mother, she never had any children. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. So, 
What cake do I have this week? What waffle will spurt out of my blather hole? How long can I last until I grumble about the tea being cold? If you can't wait to know and want to know more about this case, find out after the break. But before that, here's a promo for a true crime podcast which may very well be the epitome of the custard bit in your custard slice. Yum. Do you want to know about crimes and cases that you haven't heard anywhere else? Are you interested in the stories of missing people and unsolved cases? And do you love UK true crime? The Unseen is the podcast for you. Every fortnight, I, Caprice, take you through the stories of those that have been forgotten about, the stories that deserve attention, no matter how little we know or how long ago they happened. Everyone deserves to have their stories told. You might not already know the cases, but you won't forget them. Find The Unseen on all platforms wherever you listen. I can't wait to have you with us next time. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Emma Thorpe, Cara Joseph and Sophie Amos. I thank you all. I hope you got your goodies. A thank you to two very kind donations via the supporter link from Ms. Supertech and an anonymous donator, Initials KC. I thank you. Plus a thank you to all new, old and original listeners who continue to share this show with their friends. It's very much appreciated. But most importantly of all, it's someone's birthday. Yes, I'm talking to you, Kelly Cook. Yes, that Kelly Cook. You, the great cook, hopefully, of cakes. You'll be delighted to know that a very naughty man you may know called Matty has splashed out every single penny he has ever owned, meaning there's no dosh left to buy a single treat for Snoop or Maisie. And therefore, this whole episode is dedicated to you. As a big fan of history, true crime and horror, I can see why you love Murder Mile so much. So as you're on your next walk, no doubt doing some serious training to walk an impressive 1,000 miles this year, phew, you may even beat me as I go on my many walks to buy Eva some shoes. Myself and all of the Murder Mile listeners wish you all the very best and I hope you have a great day and a big cake. Obviously. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That was even longer than before. Why are these getting longer? Oh, frigate. <laughs> oh, <coughs> healthy. Oh, that sounds good. Hello, everyone. How are we all doing? We all good? We all good? We all healthy? Uh, I'm going to move my uh, little uh, mounter out of the way so you can hear me a bit better. There we go. Oh, I almost knocked the microphone over then. That was not good. Uh, are we all good we're all healthy good that's good i'm gonna put my tea on welcome to extra mile blah 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 we all know this bit uh unedited unscripted blah 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 this bit i will turn up the volume oops i'm knocking stuff over it's because i've got my bingo wing wings uh bathrobe on and it it tends to catch everything absolutely everything that you walk past and it's a real pain in the arse especially when you're trying to do some cooking and you've got something hot on the hob and then like these wings are probably almost maybe a foot long so it always catches stuff i'm going to open some windows yeah it grabs stuff and then you go and then you go oh shit and it's a real pain in the ass right just put my tea bag in just put popping in a sugar right we're ready to rock Right, heading back, heading back. Gonna open up a, a curtain, some windows. Oh, fresh air time, thank God. Oh, what's the cake of the day? That's This is the important bit, never mind all that shit. This is the important bit, what's the cake of the day? Cake of the day is... Da, 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 da. I mean, is it a biscuit, is it a cake? It's it's a cake. Uh, it's uh, a McVitie's Jaffa cake the the zingy lemon cake bar that they bought out at the moment which is very nice uh they're like the little jaff cake biscuits cakes who cares blah, 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 blah. but they're in cakey bar form but instead of the the uh orangey bit in the center they've added a kind of a zing, zingy lemon flavor and they're very nice yeah cake bar with dark chocolate light sponge and a lemon flavored center Whoa. The, the 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 fact that it's a little bit I don't like dark chocolate, but the little dark chocolate goes nicely with the zingy lemon. So well done McVitties. Hats off to you on that one. You've you done good job. Done good job. What else is going on in the world? Uh I've just bought some uh, uh lavender plants because it's uh, starting to get a little bit warmer now, which means all the flies are gonna be coming out and the mosquitoes and I'll wake up because they, they do love to bite on me. Eva bites on me a lot, she nibbles on me, as do the mosquitoes. So I have to spend all of my time going, Ah, you bastard, I hate that. They you can hear them and they're buzzing around and they get into your ears and you know, oh horrible. So I've bought some lavender plants. Uh, 
I have a tendency to kill plants. They don't seem to last. The uh, the little calancho that Amy got me for Christmas is surviving well. I put it in a pot. It's doing good, which is good. The um, lavender plants are doing okay. It's meant to be drained soil, I've worked out, which is uh, uh, why they don't survive. So, because I haven't got plant pots that have got holes in, I've put loads of big stones at the bottom and some twigs to make a kind of a, a space. And then I put soil on top. So I think that might do it. I think that might allow it to kind of uh, uh, drain and filter a little bit so I'm, I'm doing it that way uh, we'll see how it goes uh what else have we got oh just to say uh, uh um that message to kelly there matt got in uh in touch uh he'd, he'd ordered it you can order it online through the website there's a, a a button you can click that says personalized messages uh you can order it that way and then what i do is i get in touch and i say oh let me know about the person whose message is that's personalized and then that the send me some details and then I, i'll make it nice and detailed and you know i think I've, i did one uh last year didn't i uh but yeah if you, if uh, someone's a fan of the show and you want them to have a special message or you can even have it for yourself uh you can do that you can order it online ah <sighs> uh what else we got uh i've got some uh just ordered some new, new mugs i've just ordered some special mugs that i've created myself so there'll be about 10 of those there on the way they will be unique there will only be 10 in existence oh very exciting um i was designing some murder mile face masks uh yesterday and i thought all oh, these will look good I, I like these but uh i went to order 100 and when i got to the till to look at it i realized i didn't have 1600 uh, pounds to spare so uh no murder mile face masks what else is there? Uh, I, I, across this week, I made a nice uh, sprouts and corn booner. Oh, lovely, because I fancied a bit of a curry. And I had loads of sprouts left and some onions. And I bought some corn and added some booner. And it was very nice. It lasted four days. And uh, I'm not as windy as you might expect, which is, which is remarkable, really, considering it was me and it's sprouts and it's corn and it's booner. But there we go. Uh, pop this in. I'm not doing my leaf tea uh, until later. I find I find that I need uh, a kind of a stronger. Uh, I, I find that I need uh, just a just tea to shove down my throat in the morning, and then in the afternoon I find that the loose leaf tea is very nice. So I do that in the afternoon, and uh, uh, it's a little bit more refreshing. So I quite enjoy that. So uh, in case you're wondering, oh, why isn't he having his loose leaf tea? That's an afternoon thing I've decided. Although sometimes I do have, I've been using my cafetiere to do use my uh, the proper coffee, but I still don't like that. I still find it wasteful. There's a you know uh, the uh, instant coffee. You pop it in, and it disappears. Whereas the other coffee, the grounds, the grounds. Uh, do you know it's like where where do you put them? What do you do with them? I've been putting them in my plant pots. Because surely they must be good for plants. But I don't know. We shall see. We shall see how many of my plants die. Maybe that's why they all die. Right. Before we go into details about this case, let's do something that uh, I'd totally forgotten about, uh, which I used to enjoy and I totally forgot about. And then uh, the administrator for, uh, or moderator for the uh, Murder Mile Facebook group, Jason, thank you so much. Jason messaged me and went, you used to do a quiz. And I was like, oh yeah, I did used to do a quiz, didn't I? So the quiz is back. So, hopefully uh you've had your ears open on this one if not you'll be like ah shit i should have remembered to listen but the quiz is back so here goes question number one which county in england did maria come from 
So question one, which county in England did Maria come from? Question two, what types of food, there were four basic types, what types of food did the coal hole serve in the supper club? Mm, I mean, it all sounds good. I could tuck into them all right now. Uh, question number three, at the top of Fountain Court was the Strand, but what famous landmark was at the bottom I'll I'll post some pictures online. It's like uh, 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 where Fountain Court was. The buildings, the, the it still basically exists. The, the original buildings have all gone, but you can see what it's like. And when you look at it, you go, "Oh, that looks creepy." Uh, question number four: uh, Why was the tavern called the Coal Hole? Mm. Question number five: Fountain Court now called Savoy Buildings, is situated between which numbers on the Strand? Good luck to you if you remember that one. Uh, question six. Uh, which building, coming soon to Murdermile, is immediately opposite Fountain Court? Uh, question seven. What was built and is still there today Opposite the hangman's gallows at Newgate Prison. Newgate Prison is uh, 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 where the Old Bailey is. So the Old Bailey was built uh, on the site of Newgate Prison. Uh, and that's where they would, uh, would do the public executions up until about the eight, I think it was 1870s. They stopped doing public ones and brought them inside. Could be wrong. Uh, don't email me to let me know. I don't care. <laughs> uh, question eight. Uh, I could I could sense someone was about to go to Wikipedia then. Oh, Wikipedia, everyone's favourite. And then to email me, go, I think you're fine. It was 1856. I don't care. I don't care. By the time this comes to me, a week a week will have passed and I'll be way gone. I'll be gone. I, don't, I won't care. Uh, question eight. Um, in the hotel, the phrase, in the hotel, the phrase well-aired beds meant what? What was it code for? probably still is who knows uh, question nine uh what was the name of what was the name of M maria's lover and question 10 i might be slightly biased on this question but sorry i'm going to go with it question 10 which asshole invent uh, which asshole introduced the act of 1803 right okay let's dive into some oh grab my tea because i've left it to stew I was looking at the uh, uh, the coffee the other day because I was going to treat myself to some proper... I say proper coffee, I just mean not instant. And I was looking the other day and it was uh, it says on the back that you've got to add the coffee uh, and then leave it for like five minutes. And I just thought, what's the point in that? It's like if I leave my coffee for five minutes, by the time five minutes has passed, yeah, because they say don't use boiling water, by the time you get back to it, it's tepid. Do you know, I quite like I quite like quite warm coffee. Call me weird. Anyway, let's look dive into some extra stuff to do with this case. Um, as mentioned, uh, Fountain Court. Uh, one of the uh, regulars on that street at number three Fountain Court. So this would have been on the northwest side, so immediately opposite the coal hole, uh, and actually right next door to the doctor as well. At number three was the artist William Blake, and he lived there from 1821 until his death in 1827. 
so roughly around the time that Maria would have worked there, but the, don't forget the, the, the murder, the inverted commas, was in 1832. Uh, he was very poor. He admitted that he lived in a hole. It was a very dark, bleak place. It's where, where he had one of, his, uh, one of his worst depressions. But it was here that he did some of his most famous illustrations, uh, especially the ones for his illustrations uh, for the Book of Job and the Divine Comedy. So it's weird, this tiny little alley, uh, and it's there where he did some of his best work as well. Uh, it's really, really grotty little alley. It's very dark. It's still dark and dingy today, and the, the, the buildings are in the way at the moment. But, uh, ooh, I can't tell you this because uh, it'll give away a question, one of the questions. I've got to learn to do that. Uh, later on, uh, this became famous for the infamous Wolf Club, uh, which was a celebrated Shakespearean uh, actor known as Edmund Keane. Uh, would would use this as kind of you know he was uh, kind of travelled the world. He was like the Brad Pitt of his day. Uh, but he was big into binge boozing and hard drinking and womanizing, and he he went to the uh, coal hole quite a lot. This was kind of his place. Um. Uh, the coal hole was also famous for Renton's poses plastiques, which was a, a, a type of uh, 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 tableau vivant, which is uh, uh, you, you can uh, go and listen to an episode of uh, Soho Bites. Um, I can't remember which episode it is, but there, there's one to do with the windmill club. Go back to that. There's a, a really good section in there. What about what uh, uh, tableau vivant is all about? Uh, it's it's uh, Dom explains it much better than I do. Uh, but there's, you know, there's really kind of scandalous shows at the time, as as mentioned at the start. It was kind of for the kind of for the highbrow of kind of kind of the time. You don't you wouldn't really get the riffraff in there. This was kind of do you know because it because it was uh, up and coming fashionable young men in in top hats and tails. Therefore, it's not pervy, is it? It's, it's art. Uh, if it was lowbrow men, you know, uh, uh, brickies and. Uh, you know, uh, uh, horse shit shovelers, uh, you would say, oh, it's disgusting. Look at those perverts. But because they're these men had money, well, there we go. Oh, look, there it is again. Fucking ice cream van. Ice cream van. Half eight in the morning. Half eight in the morning. Ice cream van. Half eight in the morning. If you if you're a subscriber to Patreon and you, and you get my uh, outtakes, which are, are, are kind of a uh, not a regular thing that I do, but I do them every so often. There's one where I'm having a massive rant, freaking ice cream van, because it was it was barely two degrees and he was out going, come buy some ice cream, but it's like fucking freezing, you idiot. Oh, guy winds me up. Anyway, I don't care. I'm on extra mile. I don't I don't need to wait. Right. Um, as mentioned, so the night before, on the 12th of April, uh, Maria and Elizabeth shared a bed together. This was quite common. Don't forget, they're, they're domestic servants. So Mr. Rhodes, the owner of the property, would try and, you know, um, quite often it, it is believed as well that Sarah, sorry, Sarah and uh, Maria would share uh, a bed. But also, I think Elizabeth uh, shared the bed during the day so it's quite often that, that he would have one bed and then like multiple staff would share the bed but when one lot got out the other lot got in this is quite especially quite common in poorer families um i remember working at the um uh, museum back home years and years ago and they, they used to say that you know a family of their big thing was a family of 12 lived in this little house and it was one bedroomed uh 
a house. It's like a little cottage. It was a miner's cottage. It had a, a small bed, and they had a family of 12, and they said basically all of them slept in the bed, and it was basically rotated. You basically had 21, 18, 20, like eight hours each to sleep, and then you had to do it in rotation shifts. Ugh, horrible. Imagine how sweaty and horrible that would be. Especially as a horsehair bed as well. Uh, what else we got? Um... I might whiz to the end because there's probably things that I know there's things near the end as always that I kind of missed. Um, Maria got up in the morning. Uh, she seemed to struggle to get up. As mentioned, she went down to breakfast, but then she went back to bed, which was really re rare for her because she was normally quite up and about and doing stuff and getting stuff done. Uh, but she was really struggling. As you can appreciate, you know, she's nine months pregnant by that point, but also trying to hide it. Her back's hurting. She's feeling sick. Uh, she can't scream out in pain. Everything she's trying to hide by this point. Pretty much, you could say that Sarah and Elizabeth pretty much knew what was going on. Um, as far as I can tell, Sarah seemed to have children herself. So, you know, it's not. It's not like. It's not like this was. Uh, this was. Uh, she was like, oh, I'm too young to understand what's going on. Like she's. She clearly knew what was going on, but you know, she was respecting this lady's privacy. Uh, as mentioned before, this is in the era before uh, Bazalgette sewers came to London. So, yeah, probably about 50 years, 50 years before. Yeah. So th this is the days where there's there's some kind of plumbing inside the houses. We're not in an era still where things are being chucked out the window. You, you throw out your shit. But there is kind of a there's kind of a slight plumbing system where you could get your your porcelain chamber pots and you could tip it down the sink and then it would go down the sink but they didn't they hadn't created flushing toilets well i mean they had got flushing toilets but you had to be you had to be a lot richer to be able to afford those uh this do you know what i'm, I'm guessing that the master probably had a flushing toilet but the servants probably not uh which is why uh when maria was on top of the top of the chamber pot and you know uh all the blood was coming out etc this is why she she uh, had it in a porcelain pot. It was a towel over it, and that's why she handed it uh, to Elizabeth and said, can you get rid of this? Because the laundry room was next door, and she'd be able to tip it down the sink in there, but she didn't. Uh, she deliberately didn't. Uh, what else have we got? I'm trying to make sure I don't give away too much from the uh, the quiz. I have to remember about the quiz now. As mentioned before, the girls came in. At first, they saw uh, a couple of spots of blood on the floor and her petticoats uh, very much stained with blood. Uh, I asked her what was the matter. She said nothing was the matter, and she requested me to leave. But around the floor, uh, there was lots of woolen uh, cloths. Don't forget, this is also in an era where there really wasn't... a. Uh, sanitary towels for women so basically they just had to use whatever they had quite often it was just kind of woolen or cotton rags whatever they could find really um what else we got uh, ba, ba, ba. sarah said i went up with emerson so that's elizabeth the housemaid uh, uh the prisoner was sitting on the bed um I observed a great mess of blood on the floor she desired me to clean it up before the doctor came uh, by that point, she'd already kind of said the, the 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 stories are a little bit vague at points. It's kind of the timings all out. So sometimes one says the doctor was already called, and then the other says, "Well, the doctor, do you know." But there's a difference between the doctor and the doctor's assistant. So they're not really that worried about the doctor's assistant. But when you know, knowing that the doctor's coming, that's quite serious. Uh, um, 
it was about two or three times Sarah did actually say to her, um, asked uh, if she had a baby, and she said no. Uh, and Sarah did say, well, the, there must be a baby somewhere. If you've had a bit, if you've had a miscarriage, even a small one, there must be a baby somewhere. I, you need to tell us where it is. And she was like, there, there is no baby. Um, I, 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 what else was there? It must have been an absolutely horrible thing for Maria, especially, you know, being there by herself. She can't talk to anyone. She's got no real preparation for this. I don't know. I, 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 t- I took this out of the episode because uh, it threw it slightly off. But um, uh, three weeks before the baby was born, um, she went to a lady who she knew. I can't remember her name. It was over in Herbert's Passage, which is like two roads down. And she went to her and she said, uh, I need... I need to buy a large sheet of a diaper. So that's that's basically like a, a cotton cloth. And she says, I want to cut it into uh, 12 napkins. And she didn't have it at the moment. Uh, but she said, do you know, I can, I can sort that out for you. But if you think about it, that's that could be what she would have used for kind of nappies for the baby or something like that. Uh, it, it just seemed weird that she would go in and ask for just 12 uh but she didn't she didn't seem to have much money to be able to afford obviously you know as mentioned this is a time where women didn't have savings accounts weren't allowed to control money uh she wasn't really paid that much she was a cook she was on okay wage but she wasn't on an amazing amount um that's the way that they keep the the poor down in this area is by not paying them enough making sure that they um they sleep on the premises therefore you've got the servants always with you at all times you feed them there that will come out of their wages anyway so basically it's you know they get a little bit of a wage but basically their their food and their accommodation is taken out of that they don't have enough money to save up therefore they have to stay in serve in uh, servitude for the rest of their life as as i said at the start it's the way that the the, the rich remain pampered and the poor remain in their place um um Charles Thompson, who was the assistant to the uh, Mr. Jones, uh, the surgeon, uh, he arrived. Don't forget, this is nearer before people carried watches. So this is the same between three and four o'clock. Uh, he saw the prisoner in bed. I asked her what the matter was. She said she felt a violent pain in her stomach, but she was better now. I inquired the cause of the pain. She said she had not been periodically unwell for two months before, uh, but was then relieved and was feeling much better and thought she should get up. I left the room and one of the servants came out, this would be Elizabeth, and showed me the the pot, so that's the chamber pot, which in it was a quantity of cloths and it had a lot of blood in it. I went back into the prisoner's room, this is the court case, so they have to refer to her as the prisoner, and asked her if she had been with child. She denied it. I left again and did not see her. Um this went on for a couple of hours obviously she's lying in bed and and you know uh sarah and elizabeth are there and you know because they they have suspected about the baby for a long time and if you think about it if it were to, to go to court they could just turn, the the lawyers could just turn around and go so how did you not know about this baby do you know you're sharing a bed with this woman she's nine months pregnant do you know uh how how did you not know about that so they if you think about it it's a difficult situation for them as well they 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 want to protect her privacy and her life but and they don't want to get her into trouble but they also don't want to get into trouble for something which isn't their fault as well uh so sarah went back into the room again at about six o'clock with elizabeth and uh asked her to show us the baby she said she hadn't got had a baby um 
obviously they were worried because the master, Mr. Rhodes, may send for an officer. This this is all happening anyway. Um, but by this point, she did actually admit. She said she didn't care if all the officers of the parish were sent here. Uh, she was not willing to open the box until the next morning. So she had already admitted that... Um, uh, something was in the wooden box at that point. I didn't put that in the story because it kind of gives it away. Dr. Jones, Dr. William Jones, the uh, surgeon or doctor who lived immediately opposite, he arrived at roughly around between six and seven o'clock. Uh, he saw the prisoner lying in bed. She said she was feeling a lot better. Uh, she'd been downstairs, but she was feeling fatigued and then came up again. Um, again, he was shown uh, the uh, porcelain pot, which was still there. Uh, but as you can appreciate, the baby's not there at the moment. So she she was able to she had enough energy to manage to get to wrap up the baby, put it in a a, a towel, uh, the uh, black apron, hide it in the box. But you know she didn't have enough energy to kind of get rid of the porcelain pot into the next room. So she must have been in a really bad way. Um. Uh, Sarah said Emerson went downstairs. Uh, the prisoner got out of bed, unlocked the box, and brought the baby out. I hallooed out, oh, cook, you have hanged the baby. Uh, and uh, Emerson came up. Uh, she laid it on the floor by the drawers. She went to the drawers by the window, took out a pair of scissors and did something to the bundle. I do not know what, for she pre prevented me seeing this. Uh, question, what bundle? Answer, the child was in the bundle, I said. I said, oh, cook, oh, cook, you have hanged the baby. And that's when uh, Maria said, hush, hush, Mrs. Simmons, uh, you will hang me. I shall be hanged. Shut the door and keep it a secret from the master. Obviously, as you can appreciate, she's, she's not just worried for her life, but she's worried for her job as well. Because uh, easily the master could just turn around and go, nope, get out of here. Don't want you working here anymore. Uh, what else we got? Uh, let's move forward. It was uh so yeah uh, she had strangled the baby the the baby was born before it could it it had breathed but before it could cry she'd pulled off the uh the the cord from around her nightgown and she'd strangled it herself uh, and then she'd she'd hidden it inside the box uh, must have been a horrible situation especially considering the fact that you know what what really is her choice what can she do do you know uh she's not she's not married. She doesn't doesn't have any family to support her. Uh, if she does have the baby, uh, likelihood as as we've seen with the earlier episodes, um, if 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 a woman doesn't have enough money to be able to look after the child, and the decision about who about whether she can look after the child is not her decision. It's based on um, the courts and the the beadle of the parish and people like that. So they can just take the baby away whenever they feel like. Uh, and don't forget, this is a time of of serious religion, so it's all it's all based around what they think God wants and all that shite. Um, so um, yeah, she doesn't really have much choice here. You can you can kind of understand why she would think this this baby would, and myself would be better if the baby didn't exist anymore. So it must have been a horrible situation to have to have done. And also, there's no real record here about whether. Whether she was planning to have the child, she hadn't prepared for the child, apart from what we think might have been nappies. She hadn't got anything prepared for it. But really, where could she put that preparation? Do you know, where could she hide nappies? Where could she hide clothes? She couldn't. She hadn't got anywhere to have the baby. She had to do it in secret. So, do you know, 
whether she was planning to keep the baby or whether she had already planned in advance to to dispose of it or whether it was an instant thing we just don't know there's a lot of unknowns in this case uh what we got uh so as mentioned she wasn't immediately arrested they they decided to leave her leave her in the room uh and a police officer would would visit her on a daily basis just to check that she was okay uh and then and then she finally uh took herself to uh what was Covent Garden police station and it's there uh that she was finally arrested um autopsy uh conducted the uh, next day at noon by uh dr william jones who we've mentioned there was two of the uh the main uh dr lee and mr bevan who was the surgeon as well um uh, uh so they said that the, the skin around the neck had erupted so you know uh there's bruising uh the lungs were fully inflated with air in fact it had every appearance of having been born alive of having breathed there was a bruise on the back of the head which i considered uh most probably occasioned by a fall i do not remember anything else which struck me except that uh the afterbirth was unusually small uh he said that the navel string i.e the umbilical cord was unusually short and small as well it was not separated until i cut it so it was still uh dangling off by that point uh not connected to the mother uh the tongue protruded from the mouth and the left hand side of the face appeared more puffed than the other and drawn up the vessels of the brain were filled with blood and there was a spot of uh extravated uh blood on the left hand side of the brain everything induced me to think that death had been caused by strangulation i attended the prisoner afterwards uh but had no conversation with her about this uh, what else we got uh when they already got there there was obviously as you can appreciate the uh the uh, uh what they call the string but it was actually kind of the cord of the nightgown that was there it was you know it already you could see where it had been cut it was uh saturated with uh the mother's blood pretty much everything kind of uh stated that she had strangled her baby uh the circumstances of the lungs floating in water uh is a uns- is an unsafe criterion to ascertain if a child had been born alive i cannot say if this child this is what the the doctor said was wholly born alive i think if the tape had been applied to the neck immediately after death it would leave a mark uh while the blood was warm so even though this is the early days of um uh, pathology do you know that they, they, they're still able to kind of work out whether the baby child had breathe breathe breathed breathing breathed yeah breathed uh and whether it, whether it was alive at the time of birth or whether it died before birth but um even when they turned up they said the child was still warm by that point uh so as mentioned uh she was tried at the old bailey 17th of may 1832 so the old bailey by that point was the original old bailey not the new one that we have now uh which which was an open court i.e there was no roof uh don't forget this isn't an era where people didn't really bathe that much so uh uh it was quite stinky so they um so the courts were kind of uh, open which is kind of weird especially for britain given our our shitty weather but um that's what they would do uh i think that's a, with 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 the uh the court case itself um not only was it kind of 
because she was a woman of good character, but they, they said there was there was really no evidence of preparation in advance. Do you know they? Do you know she didn't have the cord ready by her side to strangle it? Do you know she didn't have a way to get rid of the body? Do you know none of that was there? It, it, everything they looked at just looked at a woman who'd given birth and then she strangled it literally uh, at at the time of birth so uh so because there, there was no premeditation there they couldn't really say you know this is a this is an evil woman who just hates children and da, da, da. They, they said you know she's of good character she's an inoffensive she's inoffensive she's mild you know everyone who knew her came forward and said you know she's she's a lovely lady she's very sweet um she keeps to herself uh what else Oh, yeah, so as mentioned, uh, her last recorded details. She was working as a servant to James and Elizabeth Pascal at number one Queen's Row in St. James's Clerkenwell, who were a father and daughter. Uh, she was 46, unmarried. She had no children and no known family. Um, the coal hole was uh, eventually demolished uh, and replaced by something called Terry's Theatre, uh, which was built in 1887. Uh, what else have we got? A uh, big old theatre could accommodate uh, 800. What else have we got? Uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, I've, I, look, look at that. I'm a good boy. I've written a note to myself. Answer the questions. I always have to put that at the end, otherwise I will forget. I know I'll forget because uh, I forget. Right, let's do this. Right, let's answer those questions because uh, I've waffled for about almost half an hour, which is uh, more than more than anyone should ever bear. So, question number one: Which county in England did Maria come from? Answer: Essex. Slurp, and my tea is cold already. Question two: What types of food did the coal hole serve in the supper club? They served honest foods like soups, chops, steaks and pies. Question number three. At the top of Fountain Court was the Strand. But what famous landmark was at the bottom? That was the River Thames. Which uh, William Blake uh, referred to, he said, on a, on a nice sunny day, it looked like a bar of gold. Question four. Uh, why was it called the coal hole? It was the former coal cellar for the Savoy Hospital. The Savoy Hospital uh, was uh, it burnt down prior to the coal hole tavern being built. But the Savoy Hospital is was on the site of where the Savoy Hotel is now. Uh, question five. Fountain Court, now called the Savoy Buildings is situated between which numbers on the Strand? That's 103 and 104. Question 6. Uh, which hotel, coming soon to Murder Mile, is immediately opposite Fountain Court? That is the Strand Palace Hotel. Which will be coming to Murder Mile soon because when when I looked, I went oh Strand Palace Hotel, and I did my usual search. I went uh, there's a, a special new way I found out about tracking down murders. I typed in Strand Palace Hotel murder, and I was like oh there's one I've never heard of. Right, I can dig into that. Brilliant. Uh, episode seven. What was built and is still there today opposite the Hangman's Gallows at Newgate Prison? 
That was London's first drinking fountain. It doesn't work, but it's, it's still there today. Question eight. In the hotel, the phrase well-aired beds meant what? That was code for prostitution. Question nine. What was the name of Maria's lover? His name was Harris. <sighs> Sounds like a dodgy character, doesn't he? Harris. Anyone called Harris. Ooh, dodgy. I say that because a, a regular listener to this show is my good friend, Mr. Richard Harris. And he's a dodgy character. Always has been. Always will be. The case rests, Your Honour. Hang him. Hang him by his neck. <laughs> Question 10. Uh, which asshole introduced the Act of 1803? That was Lord Edward Ellenborough. Asshole, as you can call him now. You don't need to call him Lord Edward Ellenborough. You can just call him asshole. Right. That was good. That's me done. God, I'm exhausted. Right. I'm going to go and uh, edit this. And uh, three days later, it will be done. And then I will start all over again. Hope you enjoyed that. That was good fun. Well, it wasn't good fun. It was quite a depressing story. Uh, next week is a one-parter, I believe. I could be wrong. I haven't looked at it yet. I've done the research. It's all done. It's sitting there and... I'm going to go out, I have to go out this weekend. I'm going to film this bit because I forgot to do it last weekend. I was too tired. And then next uh, this weekend, I'm going to film next week's as well. We're going to do both at the same time. Uh, but I'll, I'll post some pictures online so you can see what, what this is all about. Cool. That's me done. I'm going to stop waffling. Have yourself a good week. Be good. Stay well. Oh, I forgot to put, have I? No, I did. I did. Sorry, I, I thought I forgot to put in a section where I put in the uh, a podcast um, recommendation of the week. I have done that. I'm an idiot. Sorry, my brain's all over the shop. Right. Have yourself a good week. Uh, be good. Stay safe. Stay out of trouble. Lots of love. Bye-bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.